define it out for us. What is the point of what we've been doing for the last few weeks? And so when I was beginning my studies on this passage, I was happy to see uh, maybe he would help me help you by clearly articulating what is the point of all the digging, all the use of the name Melchizedek. What, what, what are we doing? Where's the reward coming home for sure and certain? Well, the summary is this. If I could offer you from 6, 7, and 8, really from chapter 1 all the way to chapter 8, is it's a continual sermon that the Apostle is providing for the church here. And the point of what we are saying is this. We have a high priest. Praise the Lord. That's the point. We have a high priest who was born. Jesus is his name. He was born apart from the sin of Adam. A virgin birth. He is both God and man. He is the Son of Man, the Son of God. Perfectly righteous in his obedience in the commandments and covenant of God. He is the covenant-keeping Son. He then took that obedience, that covenant-keeping, And he substituted himself for the covenant breakers. That by one man's obedience, the many disobedient would be made righteous. He then died as our substitute. This is the point of what we're saying. He then, because of his righteousness, death could not hold him. He was raised for our justification. And then, having been raised, he ascended on high. And now, he appears before the majesty in heaven, mediating his obedience for us the disobedient. How long will he mediate? Forever. That's the point in what we're saying. The covenant that he mediates is better. It was read for you there, and we'll get to that in the text, that this covenant that he mediates, our great mediator, Christ Jesus, the covenant he mediates is better. And we would ask, right, wouldn't we quite naturally, if we're listening, we hear this covenant is better, and we would quite naturally ask, better in what way? And the apostle would say to us, better in every way. There is no deficiency in the new covenant. There is no deficiency in the covenant of grace. There was a fatal deficiency in the covenant of works. Last week we considered the covenant of work and its publication, its provision, and its pronouncement. So the apostle would say to us, we ask, how is this covenant better in every way? Consider its publication. Remember, its publication, it is life-producing. This is the gospel. It is life-producing in its publication. It is a victory announcement. That's what you call the, what form of news is it? It's good news. 
It's a victory proclamation. There it is. Jesus has done it. There's the publication. It's better. That publication, the good news, the victory pronouncement, is to be performed? No. It's to be believed. That's good news. That it's already been performed. And now it is left to those who can't perform to shun their performance and embrace his performance by belief. That is good news. It is a life giving publication. It's provision. The apostle says, this is the, this is the point of what we're saying. The provision in this covenant is everlasting, perfectly righteous. The provision is God himself. This covenant truly is much better than an animal that points to something. We have the substance. Who is Christ Jesus? The provision is everlasting. It is God himself in the new covenant. He then says it's pronouncement. Remember the deficiency we looked at last week when we say, how is this new covenant better than the old covenant? Because consider its pronouncement. Its pronouncement was a deficiency. Righteousness could not be what? Secured. But we have a righteousness that is secured and imputed to the covenant breakers. This is its provision and its pronouncement. You're still asking the question, how is this covenant better perhaps? Considering its publication, its life-giving, its provision, it is once for all a completed sacrifice who is God himself. Its pronouncement is righteousness imputed to a covenant breaker. And the apostle expands the excellence of this covenant this morning for us by expanding and boasting in its presence. Look at verse 1 and 2. Now the point in what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. A minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. This is the point. This is the pronouncement. This is the announcement of victory. We have the fulfillment of the priesthood in Christ Jesus. And he intercedes on our behalf and he mediates his obedience, not yours. His performance, not yours. Where? In an earthly temple? Where I come by some other measure? No, in heaven itself, in the true tent that God set up, not man. There he is at the right hand of the throne of the majesty on high. Your righteousness is there. This is the point of what we're saying. This is in great contrast to earthly priests, to earthly ministers under the old covenant. Don't go back to performance. It is in great contrast to the performance of another who intercedes on your behalf. Not in the earth 
under the law, but in heaven, he who performed, obeyed the law and imputes that obedience to your account. This is the good news. The earthly and temporal ministry of the priests. This is a little notation to you as we consider digging into this text. We noted in Sermon 1, we're thinking, when was this sermon published or, or when, did it, uh, when was it written? And perhaps this gives us an insight, just a little bit of a, a, a rabbit trail, I guess you'd call it, when it shoots off and goes somewhere other than where you're supposed to be. That's one of these comments. But interesting to some of you would note that we were struggling with the date of the letter perhaps, and I said somewhere it was approaching somewhere near 70 A.D., 70 AD is the great fall of Jerusalem, right? Where it's sieged by the Romans and um, the destruction of the temple. Here the author gives us an insight into that, doesn't he? Because he says, uh, if you look there in the text, in the contrast to those of heaven or earthly priests, notice verse 4. Now, if he were on earth, right? The great presence of Christ is in heaven in the true tent. Now, in contrast, if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. They are serving. So again, during this time, there is a temporal ministry that this local house church group is struggling. Some believers are considering going back to the old covenant system. And it seems to be in play right here where he says, here is the great contrast choice. You either embrace Christ by faith, by believing, or you follow performance through the Levitical priesthood that is still in service, still functioning. So somewhere around this sermon was somewhere prior to the destruction of the temple because there's priests actually still serving on earth. And they are serving a copy or a shadow or a pattern of what has already been completed. So somewhere down here, the, this community is struggling with turning back and going back to what is, can be seen, touched, felt, Versus that which is believed and embraced by faith, who is Christ. Here are the earthly ministers functioning in this earthly pattern, in this earthly copy, in this earthly shadow. And there is our true righteousness, secured and imputed, not on earth, but in heaven. Not serving a copy, but fulfilling it. Herein lies the tension. For those in whom he's exhorting. A return to the copy, pattern, and shadow, or a embrace by faith of the fulfillment. Performance of ourselves or performance of another. Here is the struggle. Christ's priestly mediation is eternal and heavenly. In great contrast to the earthly and temporal ministry of those under the law. Consider with me just for a moment. How an earthly and temporal ministry of the current priesthood could not be more irrelevant and sinfully misguided. Sometimes when I stand here, um, there, there are, are circles below my eyes. I look half dead. Maybe that's occurring right now. Okay? Right. Okay, good. It's working. Then consider with me the concept of what our author is pointing out. Shadow, copy, and pattern. This is what the earthly priests are serving. 
It would be as though I stand here and perhaps there's a shadow underneath my eyes. Right? And so my shadow would somehow be from a light cast on my brow here is producing a shadow. Not to be confused with the substance, these, but a production, a shadow of them. A, it, certainly they're related. The shadow is related to my eyes. But not to be confused with my eyes. So you talk to me and you don't see my eyes, you just see my shadow. So you think there's his eyes. And I'm talking to him and I see the shadow and it's making sense to me and I'm in communication with him and I'm, and I, and I, I'm getting the whole picture here. And then I go like this. And I see that was a shadow. Not to be infused with the substance. Whoa, he's got blue eyes. I thought he had gray circles and I was just going to go with it. <laughs> right? No, 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 no. Eyes. So then, would we continue our conversation? Would you continue a conversation with me in considering my eyes as black circles? Once I've done this, I hope not. That would be confusing what is related to my eyes as my eyes themselves. A shadow, certainly, I hope, black circles aren't as nice as my eyes. <laughs> that you'd want to return to it and be like, I wish he would just do this again and I could look <laughs> at the shadow. That's how shadow and reality are functioning here. We wouldn't continue to be amazed by the sunlight hitting a building and casting a shadow on the ground. And say, there it is. There's the substance. There's the meaning. Look at this. When we come to realize, as we follow the shadow across the ground, and we realize, here's the base of a building. And then we start to look up, and we see the building. What would we do then? Continue to discuss the shadow? or lay hold of the building and begin to discuss the building. The facade, the beauty, the windows, the doors, its functionality, its people, its place. That's what we're dealing with in shadow to substance. It's related, but once the fullness of the building is realized or the eyeballs are seen, to continue to inspect and serve the shadow is irrelevant. Connected, but irrelevant. It serves a purpose. We saw the shadow and we followed it all the way to the building. But we don't just go, cool, check it out. One black streak on the ground. The eyes, who cares about them? Just notice the black circles. We don't do that. And that's what he's suggesting here. It's a shadow. It's connected, but the fullness has come. The building has been seen. The eyeballs have been seen. Jesus has come. The pinnacle of the shadow has given way. The shadow has given way, rather, to the pinnacle. The climax is Jesus, the Son of God. It's irrelevant now. Not only is it irrelevant for us to go back under the shadow, those who are currently serving the priesthood at the temple, it would be irrelevant. Not only irrelevant, it would be sinfully misguided. To forsake the person of Jesus and go back to a shadow cast on the ground. would be sinfully 
misguided. So much so that the apostle will exhort them again and again, you're near apostasy. To forsake Jesus and go back to the shadow, to want the, the death marks over the eyeballs, is apostasy. That is what he's saying. He's saying, this is the point of what we are saying. Now, consider if the apostle begins to make his argument here in the passage regarding a shadow, a copy, and a pattern. The question then on the mind of the listener, is this, is this a brand new program or is this consistent with God's original purpose? Are we to continue following the shadow? Even though you say we should grasp the building, the question is, is the building a part of God's original purpose? Or should we continue to serve the shadow? And this is how the apostle tries to help you, help me appreciate the unity of the Bible. This is nothing but the unfolding of God's unchangeable purpose at the beginning of time. It's not a brand new program dropped out of the sky that no one has a sense for history of. And this is what he's arguing about. It is consistent with the original purposes of God and covenant that Jesus Christ would be the climax and fulfillment of all our needs. So it is. Notice how he makes the argument right here in verses 6 and 8. I'll jump there. But as it is, he says, as it currently is. So the former priests there in verse 4 and 5 are serving a copy, a shadow, and following a pattern. But in great contrast here, verse 6, but as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old. As the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. And here's our key. Is this a brand new development in God's thinking? No, verse 7, for if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. Verse 8, for he finds fault with them when he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant. Now, you notice there he says, well, maybe this is brand new. Is this, is this idea of the building something brand new? Is Jesus as the fulfillment something brand new? Or is it consistent with what we followed all the way to this point? And the author is saying it's consistent. How do we know that? Because he said the positive promise, behold, the days are coming when I will do this. Which the writer says the promise of a of a forward-looking fulfillment indicates a fatal flaw in the current covenant arrangement. If there was not a need for something greater, he would have never promised something greater under the old covenant. Where was that promise made? So let's consider the old covenant was in operation. This covenant of works was in operation through Moses. And under that old covenant administration, he promised a new covenant. Why would he have done that if the old covenant was sufficient? He wouldn't have. He wouldn't have said, behold, the days are coming when I will do this. The presence of a promise indicates a deficiency in the current covenant arrangement. Otherwise, he would have never needed to make a promise for something new, something better. If this was all we needed, why would we go back 
We mustn't. Well, is this new thing something radical and different? In a way, but not different with the purposes of God. Where did he promise such a thing? Under the old covenant. That a new covenant arrangement was coming. Why? Because the current covenant was deficient. He found a fault with it. It could not secure the righteousness of his people. Therein lies a fault. So he promised a new covenant that would do just that. Secure the righteousness of God's people forever. This is how he's developing the argument here as we consider. Look at verse 9 as he speaks of the old covenant. Verse 9. So he's making this covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. And look at verse 9. Another statement on its deficiency. Current old covenant context. Verse 9. Not like. This is the covenant that he's going to make. It's not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day that when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, for they did not continue in my covenant. There is a deficiency there of their continuation in the covenant. The covenant that I am making in Christ is not like that covenant. They failed to maintain it. They failed to continue in it. I'm not making another one just like it. I'm making a better covenant. Consider verse 6 and the timing of this covenant. What is this covenant? Verse 6, but as it is. Christ has obtained a ministry that is much more excellent than the old. As the covenant he mediates is better since it is enacted on better promises. Considering verse 6, let me ask you. In verse 8, where it declares to you, he finds fault with the first covenant when he says, Behold, the days are coming. Look again in verse 10. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days. When is the writer placing this covenant? You're reading that and you're thinking, Well, I'm wondering if that covenant has occurred yet. That is, he says, Behold, in those days. Behold, in the... Uh, the latter days. So I'm considering it a future orientation. And I'm asking myself, is this covenant in play for me? Because I see it's more glorious. But I also see language in there that indicates that it's future. And remember, wait a minute. The citation and the promise was under the old covenant. So it's future-oriented from its publication date, Jeremiah. So I'm looking in Jeremiah now, and I'm thinking it is speaking of a day that is looking ahead. Not from me, but from Jeremiah. So the days are coming, Jeremiah. The days are coming, Israel. The days are coming. And in those days, and then I find out, when are these days? When are these days coming? As it is, verse 6. When did the days come? When our Lord was birthed and did live and did obey and did die as substitute and was raised. We are in those days. It is concretely connected, verse 6, 
to the ministry of Christ. The experience of everything he lists there is available when? Today. Who is the Lord of its ministry? The Lord himself. As it is, Christ has obtained this for you. So the days that were coming have come in Christ Jesus. So it is upon us then, we have to consider what is involved in these days that are here for our benefit from this text. And there are three things about this better covenant or this better ministry of Christ I want us to consider. And no, that wasn't all introduction in case you're thinking, is he just getting started? No, I usually introduce where we're going a little bit earlier, but uh, either way, I've already started with you, I'm not just resetting the clock. But there are three things about this better ministry, about this better covenant that is currently here in Christ Jesus that I would like us to consider together from this text. Number one, I want to consider the covenant's establishment. This is so important. The covenant's establishment. Number two, let's consider together through the text the covenant's participants. Who are they? Who's in this covenant? And number three, the covenant's promises. What are those promises and those benefits? So number one, the betterness of this covenant. Number one, or rather, firstly, notice the covenant's establishment. Look at verse 8. For he finds fault with them when he says, and this is, this is speaking of those under the Old Covenant, his fault he finds is with the Old Covenant and its inability to secure ultimate righteousness for his people. So he finds fault with them when he says, this future-looking promise, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I... Do you see this? Herein is your hope. When I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. The new covenant's establishment is how? How is it being established? Unilaterally. It is God who is its author and its operator. This is the glory of the new covenant. He is its author and its operator. It is, in other words, we call it unilateral. It is, in other words, this pure promise. Can you think of the other covenants in Scripture? There's many, there's many, 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 many covenants. But we think in our minds, how is this a part of the unchangeable purposes of God? How do we know this isn't something brand new, just developed and thought, this is what I'll do? How do we think, how do we know that this is consistent with the covenants that are unilateral in Scripture? That is pure promise. To God's people, consider with Adam where it was initiated in Genesis 3, the initial announcement of the covenant of grace. I will do this. Praise the Lord. I will. I will crush the serpent's head. I am going to perform this action. You are going to be a beneficiary. Oh, praise the Lord. Where does it continue to develop and progressively reveal itself, leading all the way to Jesus? Noah and his family. A unilateral covenant, yet again with Noah. I will take you and your family. 
and through you save the world. I will do this, Noah. Praise the Lord. He found favor. Where does it go next? So we see Adam, we see Noah, and there was another covenant that explains what is coming in Jesus. Abraham, do you remember that's where our author began, chapter 6, 7, and 8? Abraham. He belongs to the same development across Scripture, unilateral covenants of God, whereby he will perform it, establish it, complete it, and apply it. I will do this for you, Abraham. Abraham belongs to the covenant of grace. We continue from Adam to Noah to Abraham to David, the great promise of a king who is to come and rule God's people forever. What's, what's David's part to play in that? It is wholly built upon God to build his own kingdom. I will do this for you, David. And the next covenant that leads us directly to this one stream of the covenant of grace, not working. It's not if you do this, if you perform that, if you achieve this, then I will. It is I will do this. Adam, Noah, Abraham, David, and Jesus. This is a better covenant than the covenant that says, you will do this, and if you do it, you will live, and if you don't, you will die. This is a pronouncement. I will do this. It is a covenant of pure promise. That's why God said, in the days looking ahead, it won't be like the old covenant where they failed to maintain it, failed to be faithful. It won't be like that. This covenant is new. And I myself will do it. I am its author and its operator. And I myself, upon my own merits of my own son, will apply them. You will keep in this covenant. Because I will guarantee it. It is a covenant of grace. So it is, the covenant's establishment is what we call unilateral, as we have seen. It is wholly consistent with God's purposes in redeeming history, from Adam to Noah to Abraham to David, so now into Jesus Christ. God will unilaterally, or shall we say, after resurrection, has unilaterally established this covenant with his people. Secondly, notice, so secondly, notice the new covenant's participants. Notice there, so the author and operator is God. Not like the old covenant where it was a two-way work-it-out situation. It is a one-way establishment of grace. I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Most broadly, we consider this new covenant brings consummation, the relationship between, excuse me, between God and his people. It is bringing to consummation the relationship between God and his people. Reconciliation. Between Israel and Judah. Reconciliation of the people of God through Christ. It is a consummate relationship we'll experience with God through Christ. I can look out and I can see in the audience the question that is being begged. Maybe not by you, but by me. The question that typically comes at this time, where we consider the new covenant's promise, we consider it was made to who? Israel and Judah. 
And then here I stand as a, 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 a pastor in a, a, a Christian church and I declare that it is here and it is now and it is to you. And you say, Phew. So, it seemed to be to Israel and Judah. I'm just saying, right, absolutely. And then the question becomes, so are you doing what we've heard has been done before? And that is that the church somehow replaces Israel? So did Israel and Judah end in your view, and now the church is here and they're irrelevant? Are you one of those people called a replacement theologian? I'm just teasing. I'm just teasing. That's a good question. It's a, it's, a, it's a good point of tension there in the text. So who is Israel and Judah then? Or, well, we know who they are. Why are you applying this to the church? Great. Let me answer it this way. No. And in my notes, if you could see them, there's a capital N and a capital no. Or a capital O. That's how you spell no. N-O. So capital N, capital O, on the point of, are you replacing Israel with the church? Is that what you're doing? One for just everywhere Israel is mentioned, pull it out and throw in the, the, the church. And let's just, let's just do it that way. No. Capital N, capital O, no. As in, no, I'm not doing that. And, and because there is no replacing Israel. Because Israel has always been the same. How is one, does Paul say, if I had time, I could go to many. But just now, for argument's sake, let me win. How does Paul say, one is a Jew? Like just now, today, brand new, or always has been? So it's not replacement, it's continuity. It's continuation with Israel. How has one always been a Jew to the house of Israel and to the house of Judah? How have they always been? Paul says, Romans 2, 29, in the heart. Not all Israel of the flesh born in the house of Abraham belong to Abraham. Who does then? The heirs of the promise. Those who share in the faith of Abraham. There is no such thing as replacing. Israel has always been an Israel of the heart. Paul will say that in Romans 9. Paul said it in Romans 2. And uh, I didn't write down more passages to argue. But there's plenty there. It's always been and it will continue to be, it will always be, by faith, one will experience the promises. So there is no replacement, continuation of all who share in the faith of Abraham. So it is... Thirdly, notice one of continuations who are the New Covenant's participants. It is indeed all who share the faith of Abraham. Does that apply to Redeemer Community Church? Yes, it does. Are we a subset within this covenant? We are absolutely not. We experience its fullness as we proclaim Christ as our Savior. Thirdly, notice then, and finally for this morning, thirdly, notice the covenant's promises, verse 10 through 12. So you notice the old covenant, verse 9, that will not be like the new covenant that is emerging in verse 10. Look at, uh, look at the relationship in verse 9. 
It's not like this covenant that I made with their fathers on the day I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. Right? It's a covenant of working. For they didn't continue in it. And so I, as a, as a response, I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. It was deficient. Because it was external. It was deficient to them. But not this one. This covenant is internal. By the power of the Spirit, verse 10, for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. That is, all who belong to Israel. Those who are heirs according to the promise. Those who share the faith of Abraham. Those who have always been Israel. This is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days. In the working of Christ, declares the Lord, I will put my laws. Where will these tablets be, believer? It will be into their minds. I will write them on their hearts. He is the author and the operator of this covenant. This is what I'm going to do. And I will be their God. Correspondingly, they shall be my people. How do we know? How do we know that's going to be true? Because I will establish it, says the Lord. Verse 8. They will be my people. And they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord! For they, the people, the Israel of the heart, they will all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. For I will be merciful toward their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. How can he do that? Because as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is much more excellent than the old. I can do that. I can be merciful to their iniquity and I can remember their sin no more. I can do it because of Jesus, a perfect covenant-keeping, obedient Son who then substituted for the covenant breakers because of His righteousness has been raised. And who then stand and intercedes? So I can see their iniquity and I can look away because I can see them hidden in Jesus. For how long will we be hidden there? Forever. I can be merciful to them. And I can take what is outside of them and produce it and write it within them. So that there is nothing standing outside of them that can condemn them. I've written it on their hearts. That's not like the old covenant. And it's your covenant. This is in great contrast to the Old Covenant because one was a covenant of works. Do, work, and maintain, and you will. This one is don't do, believe. The gospel is not something that we can do, 
perform it. That's not good news. That's like the old covenant. And this one is not like that. We cannot do the gospel. We must believe the gospel. Believer, if I could encourage you, think about all of your various pursuits. I know there's moms in here. I know there's dads in here. I know there's various occupational working that's performed by those in here. And we all experience the same challenges. Finding whatever it is we do to be an identity for who we are. Thus, my, my hope, my strength is connected to my victories and the categories of my working because my working and my identity have merged. So when I do a good job, I feel really good and my hope is secure. When I do a really terrible job, I'm insecure and my world is coming kind of slowly undone because I've identified myself and my worth and my value with what it is that I'm able in, to perform. So my momming is how I am justified. How I find meaning is in my momming. And when I do good, I have great meaning. When I do bad, which is most of the time, I don't have much meaning. For me, it's pastoring. I'm identifying with who I am in my pastoring. So when I do a good job, which, like the moms and the dads, is not often, and then doing it when it is, I feel good, and when it's not, I don't. Because my identity and what I do have become the same thing. And that's not true. That's not true. But it can make us feel that way. It can be a powerful deception. My identity is bound in Jesus without working categories in categories of grace. So whatever I'm doing isn't my identity. Therefore, when I do bad, I'm still saved. When I do bad, I'm still forgiven. When I don't execute perfectly, I'm still justified. When I'm still loved of God, I still have meaning. My personhood is intact because my personhood is attached to Jesus, not my doing. That's, this is a new covenant. Its ministry is better. My identity is secure. And it is above all of my doing categories. I have meaning in succeeding and failing. Because I'm not defined by either one of them. I'm defined by Jesus. I'm hidden in Him. And I'm always forgiven. I'm always righteous. If I have faith in Him. Final comment from the text is verse 13. And speaking of a new covenant, He makes the first one obsolete. Don't go back to working. What is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready 
to vanish away. There is nothing for you but Christ alone. And your momming and your dadding and all of your various working. There is nothing for you but Christ and Him alone to define you. Let's pray.